0: Father, we indeed thank You for the opportunity to express our praise and gratitude to You. And I pray this morning, Lord, that You'd open the eyes of our hearts that we might receive from Your service, Sean, this morning, and that You would speak to us, open our minds as well as our hearts. Lord, we look forward to what You will do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, we have a special guest speaker with us, Sean McDowell. and Sean has written numerous books. He's a teacher, an author, speaker. And some of you may be familiar with his father, Josh McDowell. And one of the very first books that I read as a Christian was More Than a Carpenter. And Sean and his father have rewritten this book, and it is a great book uh, for youth, particularly. Uh, Well, at this point, I'd like to introduce to you uh, Mr. Sean McDowell. Thank you, Pastor Ron. It's great to be here because I'm back home. I was actually born in Richardson, but I am kind of disappointed because I was here for a conference this weekend. I got up Saturday morning to have waffles in my hotel room and the waffle maker was not in the shape of Texas. <laughs> so I'm wondering if something's happened since I left. I know something has with the cowboys, but I didn't know with that. Oh, sorry. I uh, I do live in Southern California now. I'm married to my high school sweetheart for 10 years and have a couple great kids, six and three. And my passion is for the church and in particular for young people. And I hope to encourage you that way this morning with this opportunity. A couple of years ago, I got an iPhone. I'm guessing some of you have iPhones. I thought, you know what? I got to have one for traveling and speaking and arranging all this stuff on the go. Got to have one. So I got in line when the 3G came out probably two summers ago, I think it was. And I'm in a mall in Southern California. It came out on a Friday. So I was in, traveling Friday. So Saturday, I'm in line. And the line went out of the Apple store and down about four stores. And as I'm sitting there, these students come walking up to the guy right next to me. They're high school students. And they said, we're talking about Jesus. What do you think? he doesn't say anything he turns leans on the railing and just puts his back to him completely ignores him so they get up and they start walking away and i said hey what are you guys doing they said well we're talking about jesus what do you think i said you know i don't even think he existed do you and they said well of course we do jesus is the son of god and he died on the cross you need to believe in him for forgiveness i said well what makes you think that story is true and they said, well, it's right here in the Bible. The Bible tells I said, now, wait a second. How do you know the Bible's true? And he goes, well, if you turn to this passage in Timothy, it tells us that all Scripture is inspired. Now, what's odd about this argument? Yeah, you use the Bible to prove the Bible. I said, well, I point out to him, I said, would you have any other evidence that it's actually true? He says, well, yes, there's these thousands of manuscripts that completely agree On everything, we can reconstruct the originals. I said, wow. Do you know how many words are in the ancient Greek New Testament? Now, at this point, I know exactly what he was thinking. Why did I have to talk to this guy? He goes, no, I don't. I said, there's about 136,000 words. Do you know if you take all these manuscripts you referred to and you compare the different, uh, the different, different manuscripts, you find there's between 300,000 and 400,000 variants. That means every word in the Bible, there could be two or three other words. A minute ago, you said it completely matched up. Can you explain this to me? He goes, um, what do you think about evolution? I said, I'm glad you asked. The evidence is overwhelming. Don't you know we have vestigial structures in our back left over from our ancestors with tails? Don't you know that humans and chimps share 99.5% DNA? Have you seen an embryological development? And I'm going on and on, and he's backing up, and his eyes are just getting bigger like this. And finally I stopped, I said, you know what? i got a confession to make. I'm a Christian, and I wish you could have seen his eyes. He goes like this, he goes, oh... And the girl standing next to him, she goes, was all that true? I said, well, some of the points I made were true, but the conclusions that I drew from them didn't really logically follow. I said, I'm a Christian, and being a Christian means that I think this is true. I said, I don't believe in Darwinian evolution. I believe there's powerful evidence for intelligent design, and I don't think there's errors in the Bible. Good for you guys on a Saturday in summer in Southern California being at the mall sharing your faith but don't you think if you're going to go talk to people and tell them they should believe in jesus that you should have some good reasons that jesus is actually who he claimed to be don't you think if you're going to go tell people not to believe in evolution and to believe in design that you should have some good evidence for design they agreed we had a great conversation they went on their way 10 minutes later i'm facing this direction i feel another tap on the shoulder i turn around it's two or three new students well, I start launching into my charade, just kind of having fun, until I look over their shoulders and I see a few hundred feet in the back, the original students who set up their friends to go convert the atheist. <laughs> now, I like to share this story with students, because a lot of, most students today would be in that similar shoes. And I say, what do you think is going to happen to those students as they get out into the university and have professors who really will criticize the scriptures? who really will undermine the idea of design or Jesus being God, let alone even existing, some would say. What's going to happen to them? A lot of them realize that if these students love God with their hearts like they did, but don't love God with their minds, many of these students are going to walk away. They're going to walk away from their faith. In fact, I started seeing students walking away more and more from their faith. One of my friends got together and said, we've got to do something about this. We've got to expose our kids to ideas and train them in a biblical worldview before they get to the university. So let's think of the most godless, secular place we can take our students, expose them to thinking, and help our students see that Christianity can hold its own. Let's take our students to Berkeley. (laughs) So we do. We take our students to Berkeley. We invite in a homosexual activist. We invite in some atheists to speak to my high school students. I train them and select them carefully. But I want them to see that Christianity can hold its own, even against the most rigorous intellectual attacks of the day. While we were there, we met with a pastor who's the head of the largest ministry at, at, at the city of Berkeley, at UC Berkeley. And I asked him, I said, you must see a lot of Christian kids come into the university. What things do you see happening as these students come on campus? He said, the first thing he said to me, said, you know what, these kids come in. Great Christian homes, great Christian families, churches. They'll have a professor, the first time a professor says something, either directly or even subtly against the Christian worldview, he says it rocks so many of these young people. And many of them never recover. And many of them never recover. David Kinneman, the president of Barn Research Group, he put it this way He said, We're learning that one of the primary reasons that ministry to teenagers Fails to produce a lasting faith is because they are not being taught to think. In George Barna studies the way he defines a worldview, it's say nine percent of evangelical adults and only three percent of evangelical youth actually have a biblical worldview. No wonder we lose so many kids to our secular culture. Now let me take a minute and define what a worldview is. We talk about it a lot. We hear it in Christian circles. Let's make sure we're on the same page. Now, this first definition will be a little complicated, but I'll break it down for you. Don't worry. A worldview is a view of the world. (laughs) Obviously, I'm messing with you. It's a philosophy of life. It's a perspective of reality. In fact, it's a perspective through which you understand and approach life in the world. Everybody has a worldview. It's impossible not to have a worldview, but we don't always realize our worldview or how significantly the way we see the world shapes the way that we live. It's like a mental map of reality. Has anybody in here gotten lost using MapQuest? Anybody? The rest of you just haven't used MapQuest. Here, here's a worldview is like a mental map of reality, not because of parks or streets or rivers, But in the world of ideas, how did we get here? Where are we going? What does it mean to be human? Does God exist? Is morality objective? What is the good life about? These are questions that guide the way we live. Those are part of our worldview. So another way to think about a worldview is, have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and had that thought, where am I? Has anybody had that thought before? you just kind of wake up, maybe you're staying at somebody's house, maybe you're in a hotel room, and you kind of wake up and you're thinking, okay, where am I? Disorientation. Well, hopefully you haven't woken up and had the thought, who am I? Because then you know things are going south very quickly. I was traveling in McPherson, Kansas, in the middle of nowhere. Actually, all Kansas is in the middle of nowhere. And I woke up and I put a towel underneath the door so it would be really dark. And I got up and I couldn't remember where I was. So I'm walking around the side of the room. I had no conception of the room until I turned the lights on. I could see things as they actually are. Well, if the lights went out at home in my house, I could get to my kids. I could get out the front door. I could get to the bathroom, get to the kitchen. I have a mental picture of how my room is operated, my house is. Well, that's what a worldview is. It's a mental picture of reality. And if our worldview is wrong, it leads to consequences. If it's right, then Jesus said it sets us free. Because the truth sets us free. So one of my professors in grad school, J.P. Moreland, put it this way. He said, this is why truth is so powerful. It allows us to cooperate with reality, whether spiritual or physical, and tap into its power. As we learn to think correctly about God, specific scriptural teachings, the soul, or other important aspects of a Christian worldview... We're placed in touch with God and those realities. And we thereby gain access to the power available to us to live in the kingdom of God. That's the power of thinking biblically. Now I'm going to give you a quick little test of six questions. And I want you to kind of judge, make your best guess on what you think would be true for evangelical youth in America based upon these today. This is from the National Study of Youth and Religion, the most in-depth study I've seen on the spiritual state of young people in America. And these categories, don't guess 2%, 10 40%, whatever. What percentage of those who say, I am a conservative Protestant teenager and evangelical, actually hold these views of God or the world? Okay, so the first one, believe God created the world but is not involved today. So what percentage of kids, just write it down or make a mental note, would say, I am an evangelical Christian, believe in God, but when pressed, they really hold a deistic view. Deism is like God wound up the universe like a clock and just put it in motion, but is not continually involved in creation. What percentage of Christian kids actually hold that view of God? Just write it down, see what you think. It should be on the handouts. Uh, Number two, believe God is impersonal like a cosmic force. This is actually the theology taught at the largest church in America. The Church of Oprah. <laughs> this is the avatar, kind of Star Wars. God is an electrical current that pervades the universe. You're God, I'm God, everything is God. What percentage of kids who say they're evangelicals actually hold that view of God? Third, maybe you're definitely believing in reincarnation. Evangelical kids would say, yeah, maybe I'm open to it, or I definitely believe in reincarnation. Fourth, uh, are not assured of the existence of miracles. Yeah, I don't know if miracles really happened or will happen. Five, are not assured of the existence of evil spirits. I don't know if Satan and demons are real. Or six, believe many religions may be true. What percentage of Christian kids would say that? Now, let's walk through these, and I'll, I'll go slow. Pastor Ron said the middle service, they're not that bright in that service, so <laughs> I'll slow down for you. Um, number one, believe God created the world but is not involved today. 10%. 10%. 1 in 10. Kind of have the new agey view of God. He's an impersonal cosmic force. 8%. You might be thinking, ah, 10, that's 1 in 10 eight that's one in twelve that's not a lot but the way the study was done these were exhaustive categories 18 percent is basically if you put those together one out of five so one out of five evangelical christian kids do not believe god is a personal being who relates to their lives now first corinthians tells us that when we're tempted god provides a way out for us there's no temptation that we cannot resist with god's help you don't think god is a personal being then why to pray to that god for help when you're going through temptation maybe you're definitely believing reincarnation 33 percent even the head of the study said these statistics should be eye-opening and he used the word alarming to conservative christians who so emphasize doctrine and beliefs one and three now think how differently you might live if you think that this life is one of millions upon the cycle of samsara as you aim to reach nirvana or you think that you have one life and every thought and every deed you will be held accountable for before a holy and just and loving God. Ideas have consequences, don't they? How about number four, not assured the existence of miracles? 23%. One in four are not sure miracles in the past or today really happened. There might be a natural explanation for him. Number five, not assured the existence of evil spirits. Forty-two percent. Now, Peter compares Satan to a roaring lion. He says to resist the devil. If we're not persuaded that Satan and demons are real, then why would we bother to take his spiritual advice of resisting the devil? And last, believe many religions are true. One in two. In fact, there was a study in Newsweek, September 27th, on page 27. And it said that 80% of Americans believe that many religions can get to God. Eight out of ten. But this is one out of two evangelical kids. Now, the New Testament, there's at least a hundred verses that directly or indirectly say that Jesus is the only way to God. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. There's one God, and man, the mediator, Christ Jesus. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one gets the father but by me. Why stand up for Christianity if you think it's just your truth and it's not objectively true? See how we see the world? Our worldview is going to shape the way that we live. The reason this is important is because studies show that people who describe themselves as born-again Christians live no differently than those who do not. People who describe themselves as born-again Christians, whether lying, cheating, hurting somebody, looking at pornography on the internet, stealing things, whatever it is, there's no difference statistically between those who are born-again Christians and those who are not. But there's a segment of born-again Christians who live differently. And you know who it is? It's born-again Christians with a biblical worldview. So those who actually see and understand the world in the way that Jesus did are more likely, not necessarily guaranteed, there's other factors, but more likely to live according to according to the Christian precepts. So David Kinnaman says this, people who have a biblical worldview are much more likely to act like Jesus because they see things such as life, people, and crises differently than most people do. And he's right. You see, here's my concern as a teacher and a parent. If we don't consciously train young people to develop a biblical worldview, they will unconsciously accept the ideas of our culture. If we don't consciously train our kids and our grandkids and kids we mentor and in our neighborhoods and in our church to have a biblical worldview, they will unconsciously accept the ideas of our world. And I think this is why Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. He's saying we're in a battle. We're in a spiritual war. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We demolish false ideas that stand in the way of the gospel. Because we're told Jesus is the truth, but Satan is what? The father of lies. He's the father of lies. And yet Jesus is the truth. Something interesting, Paul says, it sets itself up against the knowledge of God. In other words, when it comes to spiritual things, we actually have knowledge of spiritual things. Now, in our secular culture, what I'm saying is absolute heresy. To say that we have knowledge of spiritual things is considered ludicrous by our secular culture. And I think in some ways the Christian church we bought into this idea. What do we use more in Christian circles? The term of the word faith or knowledge? What do you think we use more? Faith seems pretty universal. I've seen lots of faith Bible churches. I've never seen a knowledge Bible church. Except I think there's one in the deep south in Louisiana. I found one. We use the term faith more. Biblically, what shows up more? Faith or knowledge? Knowledge does, by far. Now, our culture understands faith as blindly believing something without any evidence. That's what our culture means by faith. Oh, you have faith in God? You believe in something for which there's no evidence and there's no proof, but it helps you cope with life. That's what's meant by faith. But the Bible talks about knowledge. In fact, the book of 1 John, one in every four verses, you see the word knowledge or a derivative such as know. So 1 John 2.21 says, I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. We actually know these things to be true. But the problem is we live in a culture that says when it comes to religion and faith, Those are matters of personal preference that you compartmentalize. But science and maybe math gives us objective knowledge. So you can believe your religion in the privacy of your home as long as it helps you. But it's not something we actually know or not something that's actually true. So I did this with my students uh, a couple years ago to see what they believed about this. In my classroom in Christian school, I took a huge jar of Starburst. And I said, if you guys can guess how many Starburst are in this jar... I'll give you extra credit. Well, hands are flying, right? Students love extra credit. If I give an assignment, like half my students will do it. If it's extra credit, they all do it. So this year, I'm only assigning extra credit. And my freshmen haven't even picked up on it yet. I said, take a guess of how many Starbursts are in this jar. So 180, 221, 150, they're guessing. And I said, okay, now before I tell you can we agree that there's an objectively right answer? That there's a truth about the number of starbursts in this jar? And they said, well, of course. All right. And I took the jar and I passed it around the class. I said, pick out whichever flavor you want. You know, and they're getting giddy. They're like, ooh, candy in class, simple pleasures in life. So they're pulling out different flavors. And I came back. I said, OK, now I got another question for you. What's the right flavor? What's the correct flavor? What would you guys say? Strawberry, Yeah, that's what they said in the first hour. But doesn't that sound odd to say what's the right flavor, strawberry or lemon? You're kind of looking at me like this is a weird question. Because it's preference, isn't it? It's subjective. One might be true for you, but it might not be true for you. I said, so we seem to have two categories. The number of starbursts in which there's an objectively true answer. But then we have starburst flavor preference, which can be true and not true for you. In which category, I asked them, does morality go? Guess what a lot of them said. Well, it's preference. Sex before marriage might be wrong for you because you go to church and your parents taught it, but it's not actually wrong for me. Lying might be true for you in some circumstances, but not for me. As if it's a preference issue. And so where does Where does religion go? And not all of them, but guess what a big chunk of them said? Well, it's preference. Jesus might you know, work for you, but Buddha for me, or Ghana for me, or atheism works for me. Do you see the split that's taking place in our culture? Religion is personal and it's private. It helps me cope with life. But it's not something I think is actually objectively true. And you know who pointed this out decades ago brilliantly? I think it's more true today than we talked about it was Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer gave this famous, kind of said public and private, this two, he called it a two-story culture. Where he said on the bottom in our culture we have what's called a public sphere. This is where we have areas of objective knowledge. These are things that we can know to be true. And we can debate them. There's a right answer. So the number of starbursts in the jar would go in the bottom. So what disciplines would go there? Things like science, right? Science gives us objective knowledge. Things like math would go there. Maybe some things of history provide objective knowledge. But then he said in the private sphere, in the top, this is where there's personal things, more like starburst preference flavors. So he said things like art would go up in there. He said there's, in our culture, no one believes there's objective criteria of art. He said never category things of morality would go in there. That's why we always hear people say, well, who are you to judge me, right? That's my morality. He said things like religion are considered to belong in the upper sphere. Now, when I started to read Schaefer and I started to think about culture today, I started to realize he was exactly right. So let me give you a couple examples. Here's an example of something our president said. This is not a political endorsement or a political criticism. This is an analysis of his worldview. Here's something President said. He said, I'm a Christian and I believe in parents being able to provide children with religious instruction without interference from the state. But I also believe our schools are there to teach worldly knowledge and science. Do you see the split here a little bit? Parents have the right to teach religion in the privacy of their home. It's personal. It's in that upper category but when science speaks we have objective public knowledge then he continued he said i believe in evolution and i believe there's a difference between science and a difference between faith that doesn't make faith any less important than science it just means they're two different things do you see the split religion belongs in privacy it's personal it helps you cope with life it can be taught by your parents But science is what gives us objective, true knowledge about the world. And it's public. So you see what our culture wants us to do? To compartmentalize our religion from what we really think is true about the world. That's what our secular culture wants us to do with our faith. Here's another example. I read a publication called The Week. It's like Time or Newsweek and it presents both sides of issues. In- interesting. And there was an article probably four or five years ago called New Evidence of a Gay Gene. And they argued that if you took fruit flies and you tweaked the genes of a fruit fly, you could change the fruit fly's sexual orientation. Now, the study itself is beside the point, but the commentary in the study got my attention because he said exactly what we're talking about. Listen to what Michael Wise of Case Western Reserve University said about the study. He said, this will take the discussion about sexual preference out of the realm of morality and put it in the realm of science. You see exactly what he's saying? Insofar as morality speaks, it's just really personal preference. But now science has spoken on the issue. We know we have objective knowledge. And yet, on the other hand, Paul talked about what? We actually have spiritual knowledge. Now, I want to take a minute and break down how I think in some ways this idea of splitting truth has in particular affected this generation of young people. Studies show that of young people today, a high percentage will say that faith is very important to them. They'll say faith is important. So the National Study of Youth and Religion, 67% said faith is very important or extremely important in their lives. Now, you guys know something because you've seen a lot of statistics that you can get a statistic pretty much to say anything based upon what? How you ask the question. So they went around asking young people how important is faith to your life? Another Harvard study about two or three years ago, the freshmen, 72% said faith is very important in their lives. But in the National Study of Youth and Religion, they switched the question. Instead of asking first, how important is faith? They simply asked them, or they said, tell us what is most important in your life. And guess what almost never came up? Their faith. So Christian Smith says this. What rarely arises in such conversations are teens' religious identities, beliefs, experiences, or practices. Religion does not naturally seem to appear much on most teenagers' open-ended lists of what really matters in their lives. Religion seems to become rather compartmentalized and backgrounded in the lived experiences of most U.S. teenagers. And then what he said next, when I read this, it was like the lights went on. He said, what a number of teens apparently mean in reporting that religion is very important in their lives is that religion is very important in the strictly religious sector of their lives. Religion influences them religiously, but not necessarily in other ways. So the answer to the question, is faith important to me? Yes, it's important in the upper category where faith belongs. But it doesn't actually seep down and influence my life, what I think is true, what is real, what I can know, which shapes the way that I live. Do you see the disconnect that's taking place in our culture? So in this study, they went around and they asked young people this question, a a question I like to ask my students. I say, can you give me a practical example of how your faith affects your life can you give me a practical example about how your beliefs about God and your faith shape the way you live now if it was if their answers weren't so pathetic and a sad commentary on the young people they studied it would almost be funny listen to what some of these young people said when simply asked how does faith affect your life an 18 year old girl said religion influences me a lot with the people I choose not to be around I'm not hanging around with people that are you know Devil worshippers. Because that's just not my thing. So religion is very important because it keeps me from hanging out with devil worshippers. 17-year-old boy said religion influences me in the things I choose not to do, um, like bad things, like murder or something. That would be a great church campaign, wouldn't it? Bring your kids to church so they don't become murderers. That might get them in the doors, right? Did you see the disconnect? In fact... I can't believe this. About four years ago, I bought a minivan. (laughs) I know coming from Texas, you're disappointed. When I got married, I told my wife, I said, just so you know, I'm not a minivan guy, I won't spend my hard earned money on a minivan, I won't drive in a minivan, I won't own a minivan. Well, gas prices go up, two kids later, minivan was looking pretty sweet. Years into it, I could care less what I drive. Can I get an amen from the male minivan drivers? Amen. All right. <laughs> feeling the love, looking for an outlet. Good. I, I'm feeling connected. Well, I, I bought a minivan. I went to my students the next day. I said, Hey, my wife and I bought a car yesterday. I said, In what way do you think my Christian convictions should shape or did shape the buying of a car? And if any of you work with young people, You've seen this response before. A girl looks at me, she goes, (laughs) (laughs) Mr. McDowell, it's just a car. And she's like, whatever. Right? You've seen that with a W? She's like, it's a car. Are you serious? I said, so I can just compartmentalize my faith? It has nothing to say to the buying of a car? So you're saying your faith doesn't actually inform the way you live? Well, 20, 30 minutes, it's like pulling teeth. Finally, the senior who'd been in Christian school her whole life, she goes, I got it, Mr. McDowell. I know what you're looking for. I said, please enlighten us. She said, if the car dealership from which you bought the car was going to use the proceeds from the money you spent to fund abortions, then it would be wrong. <laughs> I took a deep breath. Technically, she right? Well, yeah, but I mean... Like, how many car dealerships do that? Look, no, she had no sense. My students weren't catching the idea. Like it says in First Corinthians, we're an ambassador for Christ. And the type of car we drive, the clothes we wear, are going to communicate something about our lives and our relationship with God. Whatever that is, it's going to communicate something, the type of car that we drive. No sense that this isn't really my money. I'm a steward of God's money. Right? No sense that this sleazy car salesman. No offense if you're a car salesman. I usually pick on lawyers. In fact, the other day when I was starting off to speak, I was, I was picking on lawyers and I was comparing lawyers to jerks. And this guy sitting right there in my front right was just getting ticked and upset. And I finally, you know, when I was done, he came right up to me. and goes, I'm so offended that you would insult lawyers. He goes, in fact, I can't believe you compare lawyers to jerks. I said, well, are you a lawyer? He goes, no, I'm a jerk. (laughs) See, my students had no sense that that car salesman is made in the image of God. And if somebody's made in the image of God, that person deserves dignity and respect as a human being, right? This is the disconnect. In fact, Christian Smith said this, he said, what are interviews almost never uncovered among teens was the view that religion summons people to embrace an obedience to truth, regardless of the personal consequences or rewards. And then he summed up his study. He said, the language that dominates U.S. adolescent interests and thinking about life, including religious and spiritual life, is primarily about personally feeling good and being happy. Isn't that what we think about God? God is a cosmic therapist to make my life better. Now, I hope if you're a Christian that God makes your life better. But last time I read the Bible, that didn't seem to happen to people who really followed the biblical pattern. In fact, many times their lives got worse. But they followed Jesus because they knew it was true and because it gave them a sense of peace amidst the persecution that they went through. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, boy, when I get home today, My kids or my grandkids are going to get it. They're so screwed up today. What do I do? I want you to realize that last night I stayed with a buddy of mine, Mark Matlock, who maybe some of you know from his conferences he does. Mark Matlock calls this generation, generation hope. And I think he's right. I have optimism and I have hope for young people today. I believe in this generation or I wouldn't teach or work with youth. That's a different talk. This morning, I wanted to wake us up to the realities of the worldview shaping many of our students. So, the question is in the last few minutes that I have, what do we do about it? What do we do? Let me just humbly offer you three principles that my wife and I try to model our parenting on, my teaching on, that I think can shape our interaction with young people. Three principles. And number one is just this. They believe there's a biblical worldview on everything. Do you believe that? Do you believe there's a biblical way of thinking about every issue in creation, entertainment, you whatever it is. My dad used to say to me, he'd say, Son, if something is biblical, it's true. If something is true, it's biblical. Colossians 2 3 says that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, even things like health, what does it mean to be a healthy person? Well, we live in a culture, I think, dominated by the worldview known as naturalism, which says supernatural things do not exist and certainly do not intervene in our world. Everything ultimately has a natural explanation. If you want to understand that worldview, watch Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is all about reason and rationality can solve everything. The supernatural is not real. Well, if that's the case, a human being is solely a body. There is no soul. You're just a body. So if a human being is not functioning properly, what's the only solution we can then give? A physical solution, right? If your car won't start in the morning when it's cold, I doubt any of you stop and you apologize your car for hitting the steering wheel and say, I'm sorry, take a deep breath. Let me try to start the engine again. You can do it. You probably don't talk to your car that way because it's solely a physical thing. So when it comes to sicknesses, say something or a condition like depression, the solution would only be physical. But what does the Bible teach? And I think philosophy show that human beings are body and soul. Jesus said, don't fear him who can destroy the body, but him who can destroy the soul for eternity. We're body and soul. So what does it mean to be a healthy person? You better take care of your body. You got to eat right. You got to get sleep. You got to exercise. But you got to take care of the soul. Right? Times of solitude, prayer, healthy relationships. Even the issue of being a healthy person can be understood from a biblical perspective. So when it comes to depression, can it be brought on by physical things? Absolutely. Right, I understand how physical things can affect the soul. Sometimes my wife and I are in a discussion and she'll say, stop, go get a glass of milk and then we'll continue this discussion. I have low blood sugar. So if I don't eat, I get like antsy. She's like, just have a slice of cheese and you'll calm down a little bit and then we can talk about this. She's smart because your body can affect the soul, but also your soul can affect the body. What about the issue of Government. Isn't it interesting that it was an American idea to have three branches of government? Why did our framers do that? Because they understood something about what it means to be human. That human beings are made in the image of God, but we're sinful. And we were corrupt. We have a tendency towards evil. So they said, instead of giving too much power to one person, let's spread it out so we can minimize human nature. You see, there's a biblical way of thinking about everything. Second, is to have conversations about worldview issues. Conversations about worldview issues. Fifty years ago, there was a study that said the worldview of a young person was shaped by a couple key things. Number one, the pictures you put up in the home showed the values of the family and shaped the way a young person would think. Second, conversations with adults it's mostly the parents over the dinner table they said there's something about a shared family meal it doesn't have to have angels singing in the background lights coming through the window open up the Bible and recite Psalm 27 or 23 doesn't happen in the McDowell household I'm doubting that happens every time in your household but there's something about a family meal and that relationship and that context Simply having conversations, not lectures, conversations about worldview issues. People often ask me, they go, how did your dad teach you a biblical worldview and your mom? It wasn't like they gave me a course and tested me. It was just through the ebb and flow of life. We'd watch a movie and maybe have a little conversation about what happened in that film. We'd have an interaction. We would have a dialogue. You see, in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, the central passage, I think, of the Old Testament... It says, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it says, talk to these things with your kids when they wake up, when they go to sleep, when you sit around your house, and when you travel. In other words, refuse to compartmentalize spiritual things to one part of your life. Make it a part of the rhythm of life. Simply in the heart of a relationship, conversations, again, not lectures, is where kids pick up a biblical worldview. They learn how to think about things. And lastly, my last thought would be model an integrated Christian life. I think we can only pass on to our kids what we first developed spiritually in our own lives. When I was about 19 years old, I, uh, I went through a period of really questioning things. I grew up with a dad who's an apologist who's defended the faith for his life. And at about 19, I had some serious questions. I remember asking my, I remember thinking I got to be honest with my dad and tell him what I think. So we went out to Breckenridge, Colorado, and I remember sitting down and I said to my dad, I said, Dad, I want you to know something. I want to know the truth, but I'm not persuaded 100% that Christianity is true. I don't know. He didn't miss a beat. He looked right at me. and Goes, son, I think that's great. And I remember thinking, Dad, are you writing a talk in your head? <laughs> Can you hear me? He goes, son, I sent you want to know the truth. He goes, look. I think if you seek after truth, you'll find it. He goes, let us help you, encourage you on the way. Don't be like a lot of kids who rebel just to rebel. You're better than that. Seek after truth. And you know your mom and I will love you no matter what you do. Let's go four-wheeling or something. And I, th- I thought, wow, that really freed me to seek truth. A couple years ago, it might have been a year ago, I said, Dad, what were you really thinking when I told you that? He goes, I was fully confident that you would find truth. I said, why? He said, because you and I had a solid relationship and I knew that your mom and I had done our best not perfectly to model an integrated Christian life and you and I had a healthy relationship, I knew it would bring you back to the truth. Friends, young people desperately need parents, adults, people that are a little older to mentor and invest in their lives. There are more false ideas coming from our culture and over the internet and our educational system, wherever it might come from, than ever before. But the powerful thing is we have truth on our sides. And if we own that truth and we live that truth and we claim it, and you become a church who pours into young people, God will do incredible things in the young people in this church for the next generation. Amen.